This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to Cathay Connect. Cathay Connect um, brings you the latest research from the University of Aberdeen. In, in this podcast series, we'll meet different researchers who will talk about their research, their projects, and its relevance to our everyday lives. In part, this series is a bit of a response to the current social distancing regulations. Um, but we do encourage you to interact with us and ask us questions by email. And you can email your questions to peru at abdn.ac.uk. So that's P-E-R-U at abdn.ac.uk. And I'll read that email address out again at the end. In this series, it's part of a wider series of events which is run by the University of Aberdeen, which seeks to connect us to you know, our local communities and celebrate our place at the heart of Aberdeen. And indeed, in 2020... Uh, we celebrate at the University of Aberdeen our 525th anniversary and, you know, really sort of being at the heart of the community in Aberdeen. And in part, this series is part of the sort of wider celebration of our 525th year. So it's very appropriate today um, that we start off with a history um, discussion. So I, I should introduce myself to begin with. I'm Chris Crowley. I work in public engagement with research at the University of Aberdeen and I'm joined today by my colleague, Dr Claire Hawes. Hi Chris, thanks for having me. You're here to talk about the Aberdeen Borough Records Project and I'll maybe just very quickly before you introduce the project just just broadly introduce the, the topic of Aberdeen's history and archaeology. I, I think it's fair to say that Aberdeen's got some of the best history and archaeology in Scotland. It's partly the archaeology is because you've got waterlogged soil in the town so that means fantastic preservation of um, organic material but you knit that together with the great archives we've got great archives at the university of aberdeen but we've also got great archives in the city archives that's the borough records the early part of which are unesco recognized and i think that formed the the key of what you were studying in the borough records project yeah absolutely um there was we've uh, a big project uh, has been undertaken at the university here led by dr jackson armstrong in the school of history here um and jackson won a big grant from the leverhulme trust um we started in 2016 and the, the purpose of the project was to transcribe the 1.5 million words that are contained in the first eight volumes of these UNESCO recognised registers. Um, so there was a whole team of colleagues, very interdisciplinary project. Um, we had historians, we had uh, legal historians, computer scientists was on the project. Um, linguists as well, all working away to make a, a digital transcription. Um, of these records, which are written in Latin and also in Middle Scots as well. So you've got sort of two different languages on the go there, and you can see that changing throughout the course of the period. Uh, the period itself was 1398, when the these volume of registers begin up until 1511. So you also get this big sweep of kind of Scottish history encompassed um, in these books over the period of kind of late medieval into sort of more early modern renaissance times and so you can see a whole load of um, really interesting things just about the history of the town and the, the sort of local life but you also got all these brilliant sort of insights into politics and language and you know all kinds of things they're, they're really a hugely significant resource for the history of Scotland. Um, so yeah so what we did was um, we turned these into a digital edition so anyone can go and look at them now online um and they're also you can we've turned them into xml codes which i have to say is not my area of expertise particularly um it was a massive learning curve and really good fun but it now means that you can do all kinds of sort of really complicated searches on them that weren't possible before and kind of add digital tags that help you to sort of do different new research methodologies so it was a 
really important project. Okay, that's that's really interesting, Claire. And I, I guess that's the kind of point here is that the records have probably always been accessible, but only accessible to those who can actually physically get up to the archives. You know, whereas this is yeah, what you're taking them and now making them available online and with these incredible searches. I, I won't try and repeat what you said there. <laughs> Sounded quite complicated, but yeah, no, that's that's it. And it's that's it's about making that accessible. It's about opening up all of these great resources. So, and you touch on life. You know, that's what it's, it's shown as is, is, is what was going on at the time. So can you talk a little bit about what life would have been like in Aberdeen at that time? Yeah, so it's it's that kind of sort of long 15th century period. So researchers estimate, we're not exactly sure, that the population might have been around about 5,000 people at that point. So that would be really big by Scottish standards and quite small by the standards of the kind of big industrial kind of towns in, in the low countries, which were the sort of hub of commercial activity at that time. Um but Aberdeen was definitely a, a, a sort of trading hub. All the records, um, a lot of them are court records, a lot of them are sort of statutes, but you've got lots of disputes being settled by the, the kind of Bailey court, as they were called, the royal officers. And you see all the time it's to do with, lots of it is to do with um, uh, ships coming in, trading goods, maybe disputes over different things, barrels of salmon. Um, you know, there's references to all the places that merchants have been. So we've got... Um, England, obviously, but the Low Countries and France and Scandinavia. So it was it was a really well connected sort of international European North Sea facing hub at this point. Um, and yeah, the, the the town itself was run by the the Burgesses. So these were a small group of of relatively sort of well off men who had special status in the town. Um, and were granted kind of trading privileges so that um, and there were certain qualifications for that you had to own property you had to um, undertake certain duties and you were sort of admitted into Burgess ship usually by right of your father um, or sometimes by right of your wife if you married into one of these families um, and of these Burgesses that ran the town they would elect some officers. Uh, the Baileys were elected, but they were royal officers, so they held the courts and had all the kind of legal authority. Um, and there was also a council which was formed, and they took lots of decisions um, regarding the running of the town and some of the statutes that they um, agreed and uh, promulgated within the town hold some of the most interesting insights into sort of local life because it was it was often sort of requests for the population to do certain things or the enforcement of these rules that they put down so it's really colourful really interesting lots of good stuff in there. Uh, I'll just pick up on one point you made there um, I noticed you said that the other uh, Burgesses were all men and I guess that is what we're talking about it's a very patriarchal society there at the time. Uh, yeah, for sure. You you do get women in the records. Um, it's um, you know there's the occasional noble woman. Um, sometimes you've got named individuals that are um, being fined for things or um, otherwise kind of appear. But it's very difficult to kind of trace individual women at this point. There's there's whole sections that where the brewers, for example, the people who did the brewing were often women, um, and they often got fined for. Um, various things, perhaps watering things down or selling for the wrong price or that kind of thing. But I know. Oh, watering down um, beer. Yeah. But what? Yeah. Sort of cardinal sin. But yeah. what you often find is they are listed um, in the records as the wife of so and so, the wife of so and so, the wife of so and so. So they may or may not have had their own status within the town, but if they were certainly if they were married, they're, they're quite often not referred to by their own names. So it's it's tricky to track them. 
I don't know. I, I mean, it's a reflection of life at the time. That was the nature of it, and that's what's reflected in the records, really. Yeah. And yeah, so it's that, that fantastic overview of life. And as you say, it's reflected through the prism of the borough records and, and their concerns and their issues. And it also touches on, you know, international history, but also, I mean, it will touch directly into people's lives as well. So, I mean, there's, I guess, so many aspects of life that will be reflected in them. Such, I mean, you touch and drink there, but there's food as well. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, within the town and sort of slightly separate to the, the sort of governance structures I've already outlined are the, the trades. Um, and so there's various different, they're almost like guilds. So they're sort of formed of craftsmen, again, usually men, um, who have specific expertise. And there's, there's lots of different ones, but two of them are the Baxters, who were the bakers of the town, and the Fleshers, who were essentially the butchers. Um, so there's a lot of um, information in the records, certainly to do with them. Baxters, I have to say, um, were forever getting into trouble. They were clearly slightly, um, wouldn't use a sort of characterization, but... <laughs> More colourful. <laughs> colourful, yes, they were colourful. And I think, obviously, as the makers of bread had quite a lot of, um, you know, bread was needed, um, and certainly it was needed to a high standard. And what one of the differences between then and now was that the council um, got to set these standards and got to set the prices for things. There wasn't a market in these goods in the same way that we understand it. So... Um, there were sort of certain standards laid out for Baxter's and they had to use certain amounts of ingredients and put loaves be certain amount of weight and this kind of thing. Um, and the Baxter's were forever transgressing this and getting hauled into the, the courts and fined for um, uh, baking bread wrongly in some way. And in fact, it's quite nice because they, they were told they had to make good, clean stuff, which I think just means conforming to the rules. But yeah. um, sometimes they were fined for making evil stuff and not well bacon. Ah, uh, so I guess maybe in our terms that would be adulterated, uh, maybe um, not watered down, but maybe they're not using the best quality wheat or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, or their their weight's a little bit off and their loaves are a bit uh, small, uh, something like that. It could yeah. be. It's hard to tell exactly what they mean by this, but it's it's frequent, and you get statutes telling them what they have to do, and then suddenly you get a whole load of fines of people who are definitely not doing it. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and the fleshers as well, obviously really, really important because they um, they dealt with uh, all sorts of uh, butchering, um, but also fish as well. Um, and there's a really nice entry from uh, 1480s where they are told they have to have up their scammels to the fish cross and there break the fish and in no other place they should do that. Um, and they should each have a sort of sufficient, sufficient vessel beside them to cast in the refuse and filth of the fish and at all times keep these scammels dished and clean. Um, otherwise they would be fined eight shillings. So it was obviously considered really, really important that these things were done correctly and that there was a time and a place and they disposed of all their, their waste as they were doing it, which you can imagine kind of a, a medieval town, there's there's lots of waste. The, the streams are not, the yeah. streets are not always clean. There's animals going about and stuff. So um, where you um, prepared your the things that people were going to eat was yeah. a huge question. So yes, you're right, it's a gory occupation and I guess in lieu of having an abattoir, this was done at the market effectively. So hence to have sufficient loamer vessels so that the offal is uh, disposed of properly. I guess that's the interpretation there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, it, also it, where, where they could hang their carcasses and this kind of thing comes up uh -huh. as well. So it's, um, mm -hmm. it's important. 
I mean, on the one hand, it's easy to say that this paints a kind of a vivid, pungent view of um, medieval Aberdeen, but it actually paints a picture about, you know, a council really concerned about the health of its citizens and wanting to make sure things are done right, yeah. Very much so. And in fact, if you look through the registers, there's all kinds of references to keeping the streets clean and making sure pigs aren't running about. And, you know, it's kind of, it's acknowledged as a problem. If it's getting repeated again, it's kind of, it's A, it's, they're on top of it, but B, it's, it's kind of, they're they're really wanting to make sure that that this is this is happening. They're aware there's a problem, and they're they're kind of um, anyone who transgresses gets fines. This kind of thing. So. Yeah, that, I mean, it's an interesting point about the streets there. I guess you know, you could, yeah, they would have to have had street cleaners. They would have to have people whose specific jobs it was. I mean, this is I guess the origins of modern local authorities, really, isn't it? It's very broadly similar areas they're concerned with. Yes, and, and another thing that's really interesting is you wouldn't you wouldn't quite go as far as to call it a council tax, but it is kind of because what what they do is there's certain things. Um, in fact, I think it was street cleaning. Sandy Coutis, I believe his name was, and the way they paid for his services was to charge a penny from everyone who had a fireplace in their house. So you would imagine this was perhaps the kind of slightly better off end of society who would be having kind of formal fireplaces, this kind of thing. So so they would they would sort of to all intents and purposes, tax all of these people that had fireplaces and pay for the cleaning of the streets that way. Yes, allow me a slight <laughs> gloss on what you say there. Yeah, you're right, this is a tax weighted on the, the value of the inhabitants' house. This is a sort of proto-council tax, and, well, you can't keep a good idea down, can you? <laughs> <laughs> It's no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it was banded at that point. But... Uh, and, uh, well, <laughs> banded by fireplace, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so that's kind of the food, it's the streets. And, of course, you mentioned the Burgesses and that raises trade. And, it, and of course, you said that it was such an international sort of, well, as international as their horizons would allow them within the, the sort of the broader confines of medieval Europe. And, of course, to this day, Aberdeen remains a you know, really cosmopolitan, outward-looking city. So it's, it's a nice sort of synergy there between the, the, the past and the, the present. But I guess trade is, is the lifeblood of the city at the time, or the borough, I should say. Yeah, very much so. Um, and they traded all kinds of things. I mean, the uh, wool was a one, hides was another one. Um, but as you're working through the records, far and away, the, the most obvious thing you come across is barrels of salmon. Mm. Um, and I think this was mainly exported rather than eating within the town, actually. Um, but it's there's lots of sort of disputes over who owes how many barrels of salmon to whom. Um, and it, to the extent where it's almost kind of used as a currency in itself, it's kind of, you know, you've got all these merchants going back and forth and sort of arguing over how many barrels of salmon are worth what, how much money and um, where they've all been and this kind of thing. Um, but you get this really, there's a thing that they have as well um, called pie powder courts, which are sort of informal ways of, of settling agreements between people in the town and merchants who would have been here from overseas who are obviously not citizens and there's interpretation of the law there and things um so they hold these it's i think i think on a sort of ad hoc basis um and pie powders from the french pieds which is literally dusty feet so it's kind of in mm. reference to the fact that these guys are traveling all over the place um and it would have been the same in these other countries where scotsmen are known to have kind of gone over and merchants visiting these other places and for the sake of their trade and things um, and some of these guys are really wealthy, even by the standards of the mm. time. There's, um, um, yeah, sort of would have been quite, quite elite figures. And of course, the the Burgesses themselves also sat in Parliament in this period. They were the third estate of the realm, so they yeah. were they were important men. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fishy scenario by the sounds of it. If you're, <laughs> yes, indeed. So, but the, I think the thing that struck me there is, again, it's the, how international it was. And you mentioned, of course, that there'd be need for arbitration. There always is in, in trade. That's that's the nature of it. There'd be different customs, but different languages. Of course, you said that the the city, the borough records were Scots, Latin, a little bit of French. So I guess these were the languages, that, the lingua franca. You know, the, Latin was the the universal language, but I guess this is what was actually getting spoken about the town, or? Yeah, the Scots would certainly been spoken about the town. Yeah. There's actually two entries in the registers in Dutch as well, um, which is kind of, on the one hand, it jumps out at you as being really unusual. Um, but on the other hand, clearly there was so much international trade going on that this was considered to be important to write this down in the in the language that you know, of the legal document concerned. But one of the really interesting things is when you're working your way through um, the, the kind of middle Scots of the period is there's actually quite a lot of sort of middle Dutch influence in that early form of Scots mm-hmm. as well. Um, so even things, even words we've got today, like breeks, for example, uh, there's a sort of Dutch word of broken, I think it is, which yeah. is trousers. Um, and there's sort of caken, which means to look. And of course, we've got keek. Um, so it's sort of... We we still yeah. kind of got that sort of linguistic yeah. crossover, which is really interesting. But when I was kind of working my way through sort of page after page after page of legal entries, and you sort of go, okay, you're you're sort of quite absorbed in the text, but you sort of take a wee step back and you think about what it must have been like at the harbour during that period, with all of these people from all these different European countries kind of muddling through in whatever language they spoke, and all these words kind of getting absorbed in different ways and yeah. and sort of working their own meanings to kind of get their trade done. So it's really yeah. a hybrid sort of a place. I, I love that, you know, breeks and keeks, too, <laughs> sort of quintessentially Scottish words, which in actual fact owe their origin to our international and outward looking characteristics of trade in the medieval period. Yeah. And great that, you know, that they still directly inform us. Actually, we should possibly call this podcast Breaks and Keeks. I think that would be <laughs> a, a great name for it, but yeah. Okay, so flipping the aside there, I mean, yeah, we've got that trade, we've got that kind of the outward looking aspect of it. And of course, that that brings trade in and out. And that, I guess it also brings money in and out and it brings information in and out of the borough as well. So this was the communication of the time really was through the ports, through through movement of people. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I mean, as well as, you know, moving money, people, the minute you move people and this this sort of brings us round to today if you like you're also going to move about disease and unfortunately yeah, yes yeah. yeah um there was um lots of entries some kind of more sort of frantic than others in this period about various sort of diseases that came through the town i mean plague's an obvious one um there was uh 1517 saw an outbreak of syphilis i believe which they called uh, the sickness of naples um and <laughs> i hope so parallels galore um mm. but apparently this was charles the eighth of france and his army had been fighting over in italy and had become kind of infected with this very quickly and sort of came back through europe and spread it all over the place so um there was lots of uh that was you know a concern for the town obviously yeah. um and they they did quarantine people at that point um they were, there's an entry from 1507 that says uh, diligent inquisition should be taken of all infected persons within the with the strange sickness of Naples for the safety of the town and the persons being infected therewith be charged to keep them securely in their house and other places 
from the, the the whole folks, meaning the well the well people. So they should take themselves yeah. off into their houses, keep separate for the safety of the town. Um, and of okay. course, yeah. sorry. <laughs> no, on you go. Uh, I was going to say, I mean, you know, in uh, you know, oversimplification here, but I guess in modern terms, that's similar to track and trace, isn't it? And then then isolation, really. I mean, just to sort of give the the broad parallels to the current. COVID-19 yeah. pandemic, yeah. Very much so. And in fact, you've got all sorts of other instances of sort of closing the gates and the ports to the town if things became particularly serious. Um, banishment even for people that refused to adhere to the rules. That wasn't common, but I think in extreme circumstances, they they could absolutely be sort of, you know, made to leave. Um, on the other hand, though, it wasn't all sort of... Um, totally authoritarian they did also provide food and drink for people who were suffering from the plague so they've they've got that element of kind of looking after people as well as as kind of doing their best to ensure that these things didn't get out of control well it's a real balance isn't it between the kind of the, the slightly more you know authoritarian or draconian seeming approach that you need in order to stop movement and but also trying to be good to the people who who, who are your people yeah yeah no yeah. very much so and i think that comes through yeah, no, that element of social compassion. I mean, this this is in the days long before social work or or any of these sort of policies. And it's it's you know it's it's the church and these local authorities are I guess the the absolute front line of um, charity, effectively. Very much so. And in fact, it would normally be the church who would do right. most of the charitable work. That I think, in sort of in extenuating circumstances, the the town would get involved quite often. A, the craftsmen, in fact, these these bodies as well right. took a role in looking after their members. Um, if people were widowed, for example, or couldn't work anymore, then the craft would kind of step in and look after the uh, the spouse and the children, anyone who was left. But that did not apply to everybody. That was that was for for the members of their trade. So usually people had to fall back on the the generosity of the church. But clearly, if you've got um, a disease sweeping the town. Then certainly, the you know the the council got involved at that point. Definitely, yeah. it was important. Actually, sorry, this was a point that occurred to me earlier, and it, I, I did mean to sort of flag it up. As you know, whilst we said that in terms of language, we still live within the sort of the, you know the broad context of the languages established then. But you know, you mentioned the trades there. We've got the incorporated trades, the seven incorporated trades of Aberdeen today, and the burgesses of guilds still both very active institutions in Aberdeen. Yeah. And it's it's good that in Aberdeen you've not only got that fantastic history, but you know these institutions are actually still alive today, still alive and very much breathing. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. Yes, and quite prominent within the town. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Sorry, that that was a digression. <laughs> Let's, we we should return to plague and black death. <laughs> but yeah, so we we touched on social compassion here, and I guess the the little bit that I know that I've worked on when I, I previously worked in the archaeology and the history of Aberdeen is the the last major visitation of the plague to Aberdeen, which is the sort of later seventeenth century. I mean, people always tend to say that it's the, it's the biggest visitation of the plague, but it's probably the one that's just best reflected in you know more complete series of records. You know, as records get more full as they move more moderns, it's hard to tell if it was, you know, hard you know a bigger visitation or if it's just the fact that there were better Absolutely. records by the you know. So, is, is there anything you'd like to say about the seventeenth century, or is that, or is that just a little bit beyond the borough records? I, I guess that I mean the thing that. That, that I I'd remembered as you know well there was two things really was that given that it was the last well, you know, this, this last incarnation of the plague and the records reflect the fact that so many people were buried on the the links down at the beach, um, yeah and um, also 
people weren't sure how to deal with it. And I, I do remember seeing that the both St. Macker's Cathedral, uh, or rather St. Macker's Church at the time, and um, King's College, that they, they, they both, they wouldn't hold services or classes indoors, that they all went out on hills, that it was outdoors. Yeah. That's right. In fact, I think there's one in the 16th century as well, where during a different disease, the council took themselves off onto Woolman Hill for their meetings mm. outside, rather than simply um, meeting in the toll booth, which would always have been their, their usual spot. So... So, yeah, kind of similar to some of the things we're seeing now, sort of coming out of quarantine and staying outside yeah. and making sure you're safe. Yeah, that, that aspect of social distancing. They, 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 yeah, if they might not have known exactly that, you know, they didn't have an understanding of biomedical science in the way that we do, but they knew that if people were close to each other, the disease moved. Yeah. 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 They got that and they reflected it in how they approached it and how they did it. I mean, in many, I mean, yes, it's it's people and the movement of people and communication and communication of diseases and ideas. And in many ways, these these big things don't change structurally over the centuries, I guess. Yeah. Whilst look, the approach, oh, sorry. No, I was agreeing. Yeah. They just they look different in the way that it happens, but it is essentially the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that that's the thing, isn't it? It's, as, as we walk down the streets of Aberdeen, you know, it's, it's hard to get that sense of what it would have been like to be in the medieval Aberdonian, but. They're ultimately the same, you know, because people haven't changed. Same hopes, aspirations, fears, loves, desires. They all they all wanted to be happy, wealthy, healthy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's it's partly why these records are so good because on the one hand you do get these really fascinating insights into into people's lives. On the other hand, it can be slightly frustrating because there's never quite enough detail. And of course, the bit that's missing is always how people thought about things or how they felt about things. So you kind of have to sort of fill in that a little bit yourself as a historian. But um, yeah, no, we're very fortunate to have this as a, a resource. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. You'll never get the full picture. And as we say, these these were the rec the official court and borough records. So it tends to be the, the records of statute and transgression of statute, I guess, yeah. So the uh, project is still ongoing just now. In fact, just got funding recently to extend. It has, yep. Jackson's got um, another big chunk of funding working with um, some colleagues over in Germany on an uh, interdisciplinary and also international project that they've got. Um, and it's comparing the financial records of Augsburg with the kind of more straightforwardly legal records of Aberdeen, um, just to kind of have a look at, the, they've also done a big digitization project over there. Right. Um, so it's it's about kind of taking these brilliant new resources and sort of putting them into dialogue with each other um, to see what can be found in the in the language that surrounds these different kind of legal financial concepts. So, and my colleague, Dr. William Hepburn's just started on that project. So I know he'll do a, a really good job of that as well. Yeah. It's good to see the life and you know, once these projects start and they make contact with other projects and they acquire their own momentum, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's fantastic, Claire. So um, I'll just remind people, if, if, if they have specific questions for yourself as part of the, the Borough Records, they can get in touch with myself at Peru, which is Public Engagement with Research Units. That's P-E-R-U at abdn.ac.uk. So Peru at abdn.ac.uk if you've got any questions and Claire will be delighted to, to answer them. Very happy but, to. Just finally, Claire, thanks very much for this. As I say, great introduction to the project of what we know about, you know, what we now know about life, how people can access it. And I suppose that's that's one final question here is, um, I guess people will be able to find out more about the borough records themselves by visiting Aberdeen City Archives website pages. And that's um, uh, 
aberdeencity.gov.uk forward slash archives. Um, and is there a way that they can find out about the original Borough Records project? Yep, the original Borough Records project, uh, complete with blog and all kinds of interesting bits and pieces on there. You can find that at aberdeenregisters.org. And I guess if you go onto the, the university website itself, you can search Borough Records and you should be able to find the search tool. Yeah. The search tool's there as well, a lot more information about the project. I believe you can find it under the Research Institute of Irish and Scottish Studies. Okay, we'll put the, we'll, we'll put the exact um, link for that project into the, uh, the, the text that goes out of this podcast. But Claire, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. 